Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today from Johannesburg is Dr. Deneo Chabalala, who is a medical oncologist at the Charlotte Makeke Academic Hospital and senior lecturer at the University of the Witwatersrand. She has a special interest in triple negative breast cancer, an area which is under-researched. And given that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, which serves as an annual international campaign to raise awareness about breast cancer. And furthermore, the 13th of October is International Metastatic Breast Cancer Day. In today's conversation, we'll unpack some of the stats, early warning signs, risk factors, preventative measures, as well as treatments. With that said, welcome to the show, Dr. Chabalala. Thank you, Dr. Gonyas Malka, for having me on the show. When I was reflecting on this topic, I looked at some of the recent statistics that are published. And according to the 2019 National Cancer Registry, apart from non-melanoma skin cancer, breast cancer is the most common cancer in women across all races. And from a South African point of view, there's a lifetime risk of one in 27. And throughout sub-Saharan Africa, the incidence of breast cancer seems to be on the rise. So given this, I suppose some of the questions that we'd want to ask, is it due to changes in environment, lifestyle, genetics, or age, or other factors? Um, so, well, I've got a bit of statistics from the South African Cancer Registry. The last reported um, statistic was in 2019, where the South African National Cancer Registry did actually state that breast cancer is the one cancer that is most diagnosed in female patients. Um, So at the moment, it is number one, followed by cervix cancer. And that's according to the last reported 2019 um, National Cancer Registry data. And globally, we've got the latest US statistics saying that breast cancer has surpassed most of the common cancers that are prevalent in females. And it is currently the most diagnosed malignancy in female patients worldwide. And it's the second commonest cause of death in female patients worldwide. However, you find that in Western countries like the US, their breast cancer numbers are coming down because they've got better screening programs and those are aiding them in making um, a a diagnosis of the breast cancer earlier. And of course, we know with breast cancer, with early detection, you do um, eventually get cured of the breast cancer. Um, So they are well ahead um, in terms of decreasing the numbers of um, occurrence of breast cancer in their their patients. Um, Of course, as you've said, there's lots of risk factors that can predispose to patients getting uh, breast cancer. By far and large, some patients present sporadically. You know, we don't know what the risk factor could be, or indeed there is a family history of breast cancer. Um, For instance, um, Caucasian patients and those of Jewish descent, we know, and there's a lot of data on that that's been confirmed to say that Ashkenazi Jewish female patients and male patients are known to have 
hereditary or genetic causes that predispose them to to certain cancers. For instance, for females, there's a BRCA1 and 2 gene that is very prevalent in that community. They are not just prone to having breast cancer, but those females indeed can also um, have an increased lifetime risk of other cancers like pancreatic cancer and ovarian cancers high on the list. So for the BRCA mutation, there is um, the increased risk of developing mostly uh, breast and ovarian cancer. So genetics is one component, which at this stage we can't really change. What yes. about age and lifestyle? As Is there particular risk groups the older we become or leading an unhealthy lifestyle as contributing factors? So sticking to breast cancer, we know that indeed the incidence of developing breast cancer increases with age. However, you can get breast cancer at any age, but the older you become, you're more prone to getting breast cancer. So you find that patients with a stronger family history of the genetic cluster of cancers may present earlier than the age of 45. But by far and large, um, after the age of 50, 55, that's your highest risk if you're a female of developing breast cancer. Um, Hence, the importance of screening for breast cancer once you're above the age of 50 to screen once a year. But yes, there's other factors and other risks or, or for lack of a better word, Um, other components that can put you at increased risk of developing breast cancer. Indeed, when you talk about, when you touch on lifestyle, patients that consume a lot of alcohol, we know that alcohol is a very big risk factor for developing breast cancer because it um, can cause the body to be in a chronic inflammatory state. We know that things like smoking and alcohol are modifiable risk factors, meaning your lifetime risk increases with the increase of use of um, those toxins because it increases the oxidative stress on your body cells. And if those cells don't rest, that chronic inflammation eventually um, will lead you to develop cancer. Um, We know that other causes or risk factors for developing breast cancer and other cancers is the type of diet that we eat. So red meat and processed foods indeed do increase your risk of developing any form of cancer. Your sugary drinks and your your sweets um, lead to um, diseases or syndromes like obesity. And obesity has become the biggest risk factor for developing some cancers. So there's a lot in terms of risks that we need to look at um, in terms of uh, what could cause it, possibly cause breast cancer. There's females who have had radiation previously to their chest wall. You're at increased risk of developing breast cancer. But we know that um, with most malignancies, genetics seem to play um, the biggest role so far. However, in addition to all the other risk factors that I've mentioned, we are seeing an increased rise in uh, breast cancer among women that are HIV positive. We're seeing a lot of our patients, about 70 to 80% of our patients that do present to our oncology clinic are indeed HIV positive. And it goes back to the data that uh, has shown that 
the reason for why these patients become at increased risk of developing cancers like breast cancer is because of that chronic inflammatory state. So that oxidative inflammatory state that is caused by HIV infection um, does indeed put them at increased risk of having breast cancer, even without a strong family history. Other diseases like diabetes, does indeed also cause that oxidative stress and increased stress on your cells. That inflammatory process that does not remit does indeed put you at increased risk also of developing breast cancer. Thanks for highlighting some of the risk factors, some of the factors that we can't control, but also factors which we can control and are linked to, to lifestyle orientation. You are listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and today we're talking to Dr. Deneo Chabalala, who is a medical oncologist at the Charlotte McKeke Academic Hospital and senior lecturer at the University of the Witwatersrand. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. When we started the conversation, you mentioned, for instance, that in the United States, the statistics are starting to reduce in breast cancer. And that is really about contributing to the fact that people are more aware that they're being diagnosed correctly. And that's why um, the incidence is dropping, because, uh, you know, once people understand and discover that they've got breast cancer, they're obviously doing something about it and having the treatment. I realize we're on radio, but what should women look out for when they're doing their self-checks? So indeed, screening plays a major role in patients presenting earlier uh, from a disease point of view. And we know that um, the survival benefit is greater if you present early with any malignancy because the cure of any cancer, including breast cancer, is to cut it out. You know, yes, there's other treatment modalities that support the surgery, but if you cut it out early, then your chances of survival and, and remission are higher. So... With the screening, the patient actually plays the most important role because the people that do, in fact, pick up the abnormalities in their bodies are the patients themselves. Because as a patient, you know your own breast, you know, you're naked when you're washing your body. So you know the shape of your breast. So I think to pay particular interest to monitoring your breasts Um, while you're taking a shower or just after taking a bath, standing in front of the mirror and looking at your breasts, do they look the same? Are they the same size? Is there a mark that you don't understand on your breast? Is the other breast looking fairly abnormal to the other one? So the abnormalities that are common that you can find on a breast when you do a self-examination, just on inspection, check if there's a nipple discharge that shouldn't be there when you're not breastfeeding, number one, check that there's a certain redness and itchiness and pain in that breast that is new and is not improving with, for instance, if you go to your primary healthcare provider and they give you antibiotics, if they think that it's a bit of inflammation or infection or a 
or a collection or an abscess or something, if it doesn't remit with the treatment that you've been given by a primary healthcare provider, then I think you should look more into it. We find that most of our youngest patients are those that are diagnosed after breastfeeding or while they're breastfeeding. So while breastfeeding, we know that patients can get what's called mastoiditis. What mastoiditis is, is infection of the ducts that produce the milk. And then uh, later the milk comes out through the nipple. So when you're breastfeeding, indeed, you're at increased risk of developing a mastoiditis. So you go to your clinic or your, 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 your general practitioner and you present and they tell you that you've got a mastoiditis, it's related to lactating, they give you an antibiotic, but indeed it doesn't remit. There's an entity called inflammatory breast cancer. And most of our young lactating females sometimes are missed at that point. Inflammatory breast cancer is a cancer where you get more than 50% of your breast red and inflamed and painful. And in most instances, as a young female patient, if they do a mammogram on you, young patients have very fibrous breasts. So you can miss breast cancer, especially if it's the inflammatory type of breast cancer. Two points that come to mind as you're, you're talking now. One from a point of mammograms, how much do they cost? Are they easily accessible to the public? because getting the right diagnosis is obviously critical to getting the right treatment. And then the second question relates to access for women who are perhaps living in more rural areas and maybe they present too late. I think I'll address, I'll finish off what I was addressing then address the two questions. I think I need to move a step back where I say, when does a female start screening? Because I think those are important questions and um, females don't know when they should start screening for their mammograms. Um, it's safe to say over the age of 50, definitely, if you haven't started, you should start screening for your mammogram. Okay, and it should be on a yearly to two yearly basis if you don't have a strong family history or if you don't have an abnormal mass or any high-risk features that um, lead you to have a higher index, index of suspicion that there might be, in fact, something abnormal with your breast. If you're younger than the age of 50, then we can say if you have a high index of suspicion or you're just nervous, like most of us are as females, then it's a discussion that you can have weighing the pros and the cons of starting your screening for breast cancer at an earlier age, at age of 45. So in a younger female, we usually do two screening modalities. We do a mammogram and a sonar. So, but if you have a high index of suspicion and you're younger than the age of 45, then indeed you should ask your primary healthcare clinician or nurse to please refer you to a tertiary um, institution because those breasts then can be subjected to a contrast um, MRI, which will definitely pick up the abnormality, even if there's no underlying mass. But the MRI will have sufficient um, sensitivity and specificity to even pick up inflammatory breast cancer on the skin and the other underlying tissues in the breast. Going back to your other question where you say, are mammograms freely available? Are they free in public hospitals? So, 
mammograms are available to female patients in our secondary and tertiary hospitals. In our primary uh, clinics, unfortunately, mammograms are not available. However, you are well within your rights to please request for the primary healthcare nurse or clinician that's seeing you in the clinic to please, or a general practitioner, to please transfer you or refer you to a secondary or tertiary institution that can indeed assist with the mammogram. Um, in most uh, facilities, if you're a South African citizen, it should be free of charge. There are other initiatives like uh, the Pink Drive that do run free services from time to time in different locations of South Africa. They're going to taxi ranks and do breast examinations. And if indeed you do have an increased risk or they feel something abnormal, they do have their trucks where they've got uh, radiographers that do assist with doing mammographies. There's a lot of initiatives, but in general, there are a lot of secondary and tertiary hospitals where mammograms are done and they are freely available. So, but you need to be referred by your primary healthcare facility, like your clinic or your general practitioner. The three institutions that I can think of or four at the top of my head, at Chris Honey Baragwanath Hospital, there's a good breast clinic there. At Charlotte McGregor, there's a good, good breast clinic. At Helen Joseph, there's indeed a very good breast clinic where you can do your mammographies. And uh, Pulisong Hospital is, um, has just joined as one of the breast clinics that do uh, feed into our system at Charlotte McGregor. So um, female patients are please encouraged if you feel something abnormal, rather err on the side of caution than not. So do present to any of these facilities with a referral letter. The sister just needs to say abnormality in the breast. Please investigate further. That's it. And you get it free of charge. So check, check, and recheck. Yes, check. Often um, our patients are missed. And, you know, it's so nice to see patients coming in with an early diagnosis when the breast cancer is still, the tumor is still small in the breast. You know, it hasn't spread to other organs and we can definitely cure you of your breast cancer. It's so disheartening to see a young female in her 30s with a young family presenting with advanced disease. It's already spread to the lungs, to the liver and to other organs indeed. And, you know, your five-year survival risk is less than two years. It's definitely less than 24 months. So, um, you know, the earlier you present, the better, and you can indeed be cured from breast cancer. And I think that's such an important message. The issue of presenting early, the issue that you have a, a high likelihood of being able to be cured. Today, we're talking to Dr. Deneo Chabalala, who is a medical oncologist at the Charlotte McKeke Academic Hospital and senior lecturer at the University of the Witwatersrand. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. I want to ask you, what prompted you to specialize in oncology? So I was lucky after I finished my undergrad studies 
at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, I had the privilege of coming to do my internship here at the Charlotte McClake Hospital. So I was in, I came to the Charlotte McClake Hospital and obviously it had been turned into a tertiary institution where every discipline was specialized. So medical oncology was offered here. And at the time in Gauteng, there were only two uh, oncology facilities. You either go to um, Steve Biko uh, in Pretoria, affiliated with the University of Pretoria, or you come to um, Charlotte Mateke, which is affiliated with the Wits University. And earlier on in my training, which is something that a lot of us don't get as intern doctors, I got the opportunity to actually work in the oncology department with Professor Paul Ruff. And um, there was also the Noseworthy Brothers. So I got to enjoy doing oncology at a very young age earlier on when I did my internship in 2008. Although um, some cases were sad to see patients um, lose their lives to cancer, but it was, it was exciting to see um, how we could cure some patients. So for me, seeing the good results encouraged me and prompted me to probably do oncology in the future because when I rotated here and it was earlier on in my training and I had never ever done or seen any um, oncology even at the University of uh, um, KwaZulu-Natal because it's highly specialized and you only get to the exposure when you know later on in your life when you're a registrar uh, doing your apprenticeship in internal medicine or indeed when you start specializing but, but I had the privilege of doing it earlier and where the outcomes were good, it really gave me this, you know, fulfillment to say, you know, I, I'd like to make people happy and I'd like to see people being cured and I'd like to encourage those with bad disease. And, you know, although you're a bad bearer of, of, of bad news, but walking the journey with, with, with these patients and encouraging them along the way and, you know, having exposure to their families as well, counseling them. I felt that I was actually a perfect candidate to be able to walk the journey with most of these patients. And I knew that after my internship and my community service, which I did both here at Charlotte McLeke, I was definitely going to um, do my apprenticeship in internal medicine and later come back and do my medical oncology training, which I, I did do and became an, an oncologist in 2018. The work that you do is saving lives, it's saving families, and is so incredibly meaningful. What triggered your interest in investigating breast cancer and triple negative breast cancer? So we know that triple negative breast cancer is the most aggressive type of breast cancer that anybody can be diagnosed with. Yes, it only accounts for 15% of breast cancers that we do diagnose worldwide, but it is the most lethal in that even if you're deemed cured after surgery and chemo and radiation, it's got a high recurrence rate, um, mainly because it's it, in, in the genetic makeup of the cancer. It's got many mutations um, and um, it's just uh, the nature of the disease, it presents normally de novo, uh, meaning you present initially with metastatic disease in most instances, it grows very fast. Um, even on treatment, it's got that propensity to progress 
we can hear the passion for your field and the work that that you're doing through through your voice. Dr. Chabalala, so we've spoken about the work that you currently do and and all that it entails from an oncology perspective with your particular interest in breast cancer. Reflecting back for a moment, do you think that from a South African point of view, our environment is supportive enough towards female doctors and are medical schools in the country encouraging women to pursue careers in medicine? So, I mean, looking at my background, I grew up in Soweto. And for me, you know, being a doctor, being a lawyer, you know, being a teacher, being a nurse, those were the careers that, you know, we esteemed or, or were encouraged to pursue. And in particular with medicine, I mean, I forever wanted to be a doctor. And I know with Wits University, since I'm now affiliated with them, but uh, most of the universities and um, their medical schools have a quota that they need to stick to, um, that the government has stipulated and given them a mandate that they have a fairly good representation of females that they do take into their medical school program. Um, so I know at Wits, they are mandated to take um, 60% must be female. And then obviously there's other demographics like the racial profile. But I think there's a good female representation in the medical schools, in the undergraduate training programs. But unfortunately, as you go up into postgraduate training programs, there's a bit of a stifling and competition uh, for, for posts because, number one, there's not enough funding by the government for people to do um, or specialize further. So it becomes very tricky in that <clears throat> the representation of females and males is very disproportionate. For instance, you take internal medicine. Currently, there is more males who, as physicians and as cardiologists, if you talk about super specialists, as cardiologists, as nephrologists, there are more males. And, you know, there still needs to be a lot of work done in terms of getting more females as specialists and super specialists in the positions of heads of units. It's still male dominated in most of the universities um, with a handful or less than a handful of females uh, holding those senior executives positions in in all our disciplines in all the universities what do you think needs to be done to accelerate that to get more women into leadership posts because they've demonstrated that they've got the credentials you spoke about funding as being one of the deterrents in terms of specialization opportunities but beyond funding what needs to be done is it about uh, building better networks how else can we create these opportunities so that women enter these spaces? So unfortunately, you know, there's processes and procedures um, when you go for these interviews for these positions. And in most instances, when you go for this interview, you seem to be the candidate that will actually get the job. But uh, whether there's a bias or 
unfortunately, some departments already have their own candidate that they would like to fulfill the, the certain position. So unfortunately, there is still competitiveness, favoritism, and even if you're a female and your point scoring or your profile or your your interview indeed puts you as first place to get the position, it's still very competitive, unfortunately. And I can't say what it is we can do more to tackle um, such a problem, but I can probably suggest that the more resilient us women can be in that if you don't get the position the first time, go back. For me, I never got the position when I went for my interview. I remember very well going for my interview in 2015. There were two candidates. It was a male and me. (laughs) And the male was not a black female. So already for me was a point more than him. But unfortunately in the interview, other things were brought up that subjected me to not being the candidate of choice. But I persisted. I persisted and I stayed within the hospital so that I was visible. And the next time there was an interview, at the end of 2015, I went for the interview indeed. And I was successful this time. And uh, ever since I've been in the Department of Internal Medicine. And, and, and I'd like to think that Prof. Poraf played a big role because I was about to leave this university. And Prof. Raf called me the one day and said, you know what, in life sometimes you're not going to get everything the way you want it. It's not going to come easy. So just stick around, make yourself visible, you know, show them you, you really want this and be resilient. And I took his advice. And the very next time I got the position and I'm now a senior consultant in the, in the department. So sometimes um, not giving up does assist, does help. I'm one person who's very resilient, so I, I stick it out. And I think that's why I've, I've managed to be where I am. I think that's such an important message, this message of uh, persistence, of perseverance. And in a way, I'm almost reminded of an advertising model called ADA, which is about awareness, interest, desire and I think the last part is acquisition which really just shows this of of showing up making sure that people know who you are and continuing with that presence and when the next opportunity arises you're prepared and taking advantage and opening those doors so well done thank you Dr Chabalala we're coming towards the latter part of the show and Everybody has a different journey in their life and whether that's about drawing on different resources to help them attain their goals. We know that perseverance is certainly one of your traits, but a question I ask all my guests is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. Some will will speak about discipline, others will talk about focus, values, a particular person. Please, can you tell us, in your opinion, what have been some of the key drivers to your success? So for me, growing up in a township in Soweto, I grew in the more affluent part of Soweto, but it was still Soweto, you know. There were very few role models, but the ones that stuck out constantly for me throughout my um, 
primary school and high school journey were two gentlemen, in fact. Um, one of them is actually an advocate right now and an acting judge. So he lived the next street from my street and I always admired him, you know, a simple man, but, uh, you know, a man of integrity. You know, every time you spoke to him, he had words of encouragement and what do you want to do when you grow up? Make sure you are something. So he really encouraged me. His name is Mandla Mota. And then I had a cousin, also a male, very quiet, but really went on to achieve great things. Um, he's a quantity surveyor and their company does a lot of construction around the country. It's a 100% black owned company and they've done well for themselves. So I've ha always had those two gentlemen as my benchmark that, you know, when I grow up, I better be something if not equivalent to them, better than them. And then I had the extra and added influence of a friend of mine that we actually met in Great North. So Michelle was very driven from, you know, when we were young. And as soon as we got to high school, she was a very high achiever. I was more into sports, but, you know, academia was also, so I was more well-rounded, you know, an all-rounder. And Michelle then... Um, when we passed matric, indeed had big plans of being a chartered accountant. And for me, from the time that I was in grade eight, you know, my first year of high school, I knew I wanted to be a medical doctor, but I had to do well in my math, you know. So uh, Michelle Mohorani played a very big role in that she always was consistent in her achievements, you know, and I promised myself and I was competing with her. She doesn't know, but I competed with her a lot in that every time I had to write a test, I thought, you know, Michelle's going to get an A for this. So I better get an A or something close to an A. So she, she was my biggest driver with that competition that I had secretly with her. That's such a great story, that competitive rivalry, having that extra boost just to keep driving and pushing you ahead to do your best. And then obviously your cousin and your neighbor down the street having the aspiration to either aspire to be like them or to indeed be better or on, on par with them. Can you tell us about a few moments in your life growing up that were particularly impactful? So for me, I have a very strong mother. Um, although my mom did not finish matric, at the time when they were in school, grade 10 was good enough for you to start work. And she went on to work um, at the ShopRite, OK Bazaar ShopRite at the time. She was a manager. In those companies, you, you were either a manager as a white woman or a colored woman, but because she was so fluent in Afrikaans, they made her a manager. And Shortly after that, she got into First National Bank. She worked in F&B as a clerk, clearing checks. And for the rest of her life, that's all she did until she retired. And the strength that my mom, um, when I looked at her, you know, every time it reflected and bounced back on me. And my mom always had strong words for us. We didn't grow up smooth, easy environment where money was easily available. And my mom was the sole breadwinner in the house. My dad, ever since I could, you know, I was wise enough to see what's happening in the family dynamics, my dad has never worked. 
My mom used to provide, my dad used to be home and make sure that we're coming back from school and we're fed and everything. So he was almost like a house husband and my mom did all the work and provided for us. So that strength came from my mom. And my mom always used to have, she'd joke around, but she used to say, you know, um, unfortunately, you've got peers that you're growing up with. And if you don't aim to do your best and become something in life, you're going to wash your friend's car one day. So I promised myself I was never going to ask a friend for money or indeed wash my friend's car one day because she has the money, she has the car and I I have nothing. During that time, my mom used to say to us, oh, you can go be somebody's domestic worker and wash for them and clean for them. And and I didn't want that. And I also didn't want to be a clerk like my mom. I admired her for everything she did for us. My aspiration was definitely not doing clerical work as my mom had a bank. And the only thing I did indeed want to be was a medical doctor. Um, so indeed, then I went on to, to do well and get into medical school. And yeah, the rest, you know, becomes history. And I'm glad that I've achieved what I have managed to achieve despite my background. And, and, and it's just living proof to any young um, student learner that with hard work unfortunately it can't happen without hard work with hard work and a lot of discipline there's a lot of things that I had to miss out on while the rest of my friends were enjoying some of the other perks of doing three-year courses and they could work sooner than I did I remember vividly my best friend Michelle you know she was going on trips overseas because she was already working. And I couldn't, I still had to be a student. But, you know, you persevere, you know, and you focus and you know what your end goal is and you just put your head down and you persist and uh, remain disciplined. And, And those are my words of encouragement. It's a lot of hard work and you're going to miss out on a lot of great things. But, you know... Um, you're never too old to achieve and become great. Thank you very much for that message, your words of encouragement, the fact that everybody has their own life to pursue and their path and their journey. And depending on what choices you make, it may be a little bit of a longer route in comparison to somebody else pursuing a different field. Um, but those are your choices and and your foundation. So thanks very much for joining us on the show today, for sharing your journey, and we wish you every success on your next path. You have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, and we have been talking to Dr. Dineo Chabalala, who is a medical oncologist at Charlotte Makeke Academic Hospital and senior lecturer at the University of the Witwatersrand, who has a special interest in triple negative breast cancer.